The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Have you shopped at Denim, at Scotch and Soda? Have you shopped at Superdry in South Africa? Um, if you have, then you have um, supported the business of Victor Barbosa. He is a creative entrepreneur, the co-founder of Naked Coffee. That's his latest venture. We'll get to Naked Coffee in just a moment. Um, but you have been, I, I, I don't know, you've been in the fashion industry for a while. I've never asked anybody this before, Victor. But what are you wearing? <laughs> Hi, Bruce. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um, currently, I'm wearing some uh, sweatpants and just a hoodie. Comfortable. That is so disappointing. That is so disappointing. <laughs> People used to dress up for the radio. Fancy, wear, like, wear tuxes and stuff. But I mean, you like fancy clothes. I mean, your background is in fashion. You do like fashionable things. I'm sure when you go out, you don't go in out in sweatpants and a hoodie. Well, not if you're going out seriously. If you're going to the gym, fine. Uh, but you take it a bit more seriously when you do step out in public. Yeah, I'd like to think so, Bruce. Um, we're definitely uh, a business that's that's fashion focused. Um, and yeah, very passionate about like high end fashion retail. So, talk to me, talk to yeah, me about your I fashion. Mean, uh, as you mentioned, talk to me about your fashion experience. Where did you cut your teeth? Um, so I kind of uh, paid my school fees. I, I started fresh out of school, working for a retail business called Replay. Um, kind of earned my stripes and learned the business there from a young age. Um, spent about five years with the business. Um, then went overseas to London and lived in London for two years with my business partner. And John, returning to South Africa, we just kind of identified, you know, or, or felt that there were more opportunities that we could kind of take advantage of and uh, started our business in 2008. That experience at Replay, when you joined the business, did you join the business of Replay or did you do like many people do and go and become the sales assistant in the shop um, first and then you know, maybe find a path through into head office? How did that work? Yeah, exactly that. So I kind of started as a part-time on the weekends um, and gradually grew through the ranks, eventually managing a couple of the stores. And uh, yeah, like I say, I mean, I just, uh, yeah, we learned the trade there. Um, it was a great business, dynamic brand at the time, still is. Um, and it kind of paved the way for me to get into the fashion industry. And, um, yeah, it kind of uh, inspired me in a big way. What gripped you about the, 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 the fashion business? What was it about it that said, this is actually where I want to focus my attention? I think I've always just had a kind of appreciation for fine clothes. Um, I've always loved the luxury space. I've always followed luxury brands. Um, I'm very lifestyle driven. So I think, um, you know, in that aspect, it's not just fashion. It's also food, um, hotels, all of that type of stuff kind of inspires me. Um, interior spaces. Um, but yeah, my, my, my love for fashion started there and just the attention to detail, you know, that these fashion brands kind of pour into the product, I think really inspired me. Because when you and Sean Else returned from London, the, I think your first idea was to go wholesale. You'd seen all of these incredible brands. You were perfectly aware of the fact that these brands didn't have a presence in South Africa, or at least not a substantial presence. And you thought, well, if you could wholesale into the market, then you'd actually have a great business. But then I suppose you found that 
there wasn't really the market for high volumes of luxury goods in South Africa. And it's you know, one of the problems with the structure of our of our country and our economy is we just don't have enough customers for um, all of the cool stuff that exists in economies that are bigger than ours. Yeah, exactly that. Um, not only, I mean, obviously the market we were catering to is quite small. It's a small percentage of the population. Um, but at the time, you know, we wanted to introduce these brands through distribution and wholesale, but we realized quickly that there weren't actually many kind of multi-branded stores that we could cater to. Um, so after about a year of trying to open a few doors, we just decided to kind of open our own retail space. Um, and we opened a multi-branded store in Birdhaven called Infinite 60 um, in 2008. And uh, yeah, that was our first kind of venture into being entrepreneurs. Was that in that lovely little Birdhaven Centre? Lots of really trendy shops. Kirsten Goss had a shop there at that sort of time. Um, and it was just quite a vibey sort of centre in terms of um, really attracting different kinds of arty businesses. Yes, very much so. We actually took over an old hairdresser that had been there for like 10 or 20 years. Um, small little 50 square metre space. And yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, yeah, just kind of paved the way to greater things. Um, it was a great little business at the time, and uh, we built a very good reputation for ourselves. What did you learn there? What did that teach you, that process of you know learning that wholesale is not going to work for you, the process of starting a boutique with multiple brands? Because you become considerably more focused after that. I wonder what you learned in that multi-branded boutique environment. <laughs> well, we learned that... Um, Look, I think our biggest challenge there was the fact that we were kind of off the beaten track. Um, it was a beautiful little space, but we didn't have kind of uh, foot traffic as you would have in a shopping center. Yeah. Um, and it was difficult to kind of keep turning the stock in order to bring in new stock. You know, you were seeing regular faces on, on a regular basis um, and they were kept demanding new products, you know, but you needed to sell the products in order to pay for the new product. Um, so we decided to move into kind of smaller community shopping centers. We opened our second store in 2010, I think, in Morningside Shopping Center, and then later on in Melrose Arch. Um, and yeah, so the business continued to grow. And then, you know, with a growing business, we managed to attract better brands and bigger brands and eventually kind of making or contacting or connecting with super dry in about 2010, um, how does, how does was exploding. How does that world work, though? When you run a boutique, you've got a network of boutiques. Now, do they come to you or do you have to go and find them? Do you have to go knock on their door and say, really, it's worth your while to talk to us? Honestly, we sell X hundred thousand rands worth of product every single week or every single month. Um, you could actually use us as an outlet. How does that process work of making the connections? Yeah, it's not an easy one. Um, fortunately, we were in um, a position that we were able to travel and we would visit these trade shows in Barcelona, in Berlin, in Italy. And, um, you know, we kind of would earmark and identify brands that we felt could work well in South Africa. And we would just target them, you know, and that was the biggest challenge was actually connecting with the right people. You know, numerous phone calls, getting the phone hung up on us hundreds of times, and eventually just connecting with the right person within the business. And yeah, it was quite an ordeal to convince them. You know, you'd have to put forward a, a solid business proposal. Um, 
And I think they just took a liking to us. You know, we were two young, hungry entrepreneurs, uh, very passionate. And I think we had a good eye. And uh, yeah, we managed to kind of close the deal on some really good brands. And Superdry becomes the big one. Uh, Superdry becomes a big break for you. As you said, I think it was 2010, Superdry exploding all over the world. You're in the right place at the right time with the right contacts because you've been bothering them for years. Uh, how, how did that arrangement work? Because I think you got to about nine stores and then you sold out to Bounty Brands, which is um, unfortunately not quite what it used to be. Yes, correct. Um, yeah, I think... Uh we just we obviously put forward a business proposal that the guys kind of took a liking to. We did tender against some big businesses at the time. Um, I think even the likes of maybe Edcon and Studifords at the time were also trying to target Superdry. Um, but I think they just liked our approach. Our approach was quite organic. You know, we wanted to build. Um, it wasn't a, a fast kind of business plan. We wanted to grow organically and build it in key locations. I think we committed to like a three or four store opening in five years and we managed to open six in the first five years of having the brand. Um, and like you say, I think in the eight years we had the brand, we actually grew it to 10 stores before selling to Bounty Brands. And yeah, it was an incredible journey. Um, and it also opened the doors to other brands, you know, like Scotch and Soda, which we opened in 2014 um, and now Denham Jeans. Now, Scotch and Soda is still part of the business. I mean, you still have the right to sell Scotch and Soda in South Africa. How's that gone? Yes, very well. Thank you. Um, we currently have six stores. Uh, we also have a wholesale business. We, we distribute to a couple of stores in South Africa. And we opened, uh, well, we started the online business during COVID, which actually helped us significantly. Um, but the business is growing. It's growing well. We've got a seven-store plan for the fourth quarter of this year. And it continues to grow year on year. And it's, it's a great brand. You know, it's, uh, it's doing very well in South Africa. You can't make mistakes. I mean, you know, if you're Woolies and you get your product mix wrong or true with of Shinny Group and you try and do it less and less and you try and get it right more often than not. But if you guys get it wrong, if you get the product mix wrong, if you make bad choices out of, I don't know, they have to have a catalog they send you six months before the stuff is due to say, this is what we can supply you. Pick your favorite three T-shirts, your favorite five pairs of pants or whatever the case is. If you get it wrong, it can break you. I mean, you'll be buying stock that you can't sell. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I wish it was as easy as picking stock out of a catalog. Um, I actually fly over a year in advance. Um, so we kind of have to trend forecast. We, we have to identify, you know, strengths in the marketplaces that we feel that we can really kind of dominate. And, um, we buy the year product, uh, the product a year in advance. Um, and hopefully we get it right. But I think, you know, our years of experience have kind of, uh, there's less risk now. We kind of understand the market. We play to our strengths, and thankfully, we haven't made too many mistakes. And then denim. I'm not familiar with denim, but it's a denim business spelled D-E-N-H-A-M. Is that also a retail outlet? Yes, it is. Um, we've currently got two stores, one in Hyde Park Shopping Center and one in the V&A Waterfront. Um, it's, it's a specialized denim brand, um, very high-end Beautiful products, predominantly made in Italy and Japan. It is a Dutch brand as well, out of Amsterdam. Um, and still quite niche, still growing. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we hope that it will continue to grow and thrive. Then on to your latest venture. 
And this is one that I find really interesting because the coffee sector in South Africa is very, very densely traded. But you've managed to find somehow carved out a niche for a new uh, coffee concept of naked coffee. Describe it to me. Yes, so Naked, we kind of got the idea for Naked. It was inspired by our trips to Amsterdam. Um, the artisanal coffee scene was kind of exploding in Europe. It obviously started in Australia and New Zealand, and it was making its way to Europe. Um, and you are finding these small little specialist cafes, you know, very um, detail kind of focused. Obviously, they were quite rustic cafes, but there was a lot of attention put into the actual bean and the process and the way the coffee was made, um, it wasn't your, your average commercial type of coffee. And, you know, I just kind of fell in love with the idea and we decided to, to give it a go here in South Africa and we opened one in one of our clothing stores at the time. Um, and yeah, within like a year or two, it kind of just took on a life on its own. And two years later, we ended up opening a full cafe with the kitchen. And, yeah, the rest is history. I mean, the brand has just grown from strength to strength. We're now up to our sixth outlet. Um, we're looking at opening some more stores this year, and it's it's also doing very well. I mean, it's about test, test, test. I mean, you, you start off your clothing uh, retail experience testing um, in the environment in Birdhaven, trying out the different brands, identifying which ones are sought after, and then identifying those. With your coffee shop, you put it into a store and you test it in the store. And I'm sure you eventually you start getting people who are bypassing the clothes and coming in for the coffee. If the coffee is as good as it's cracked up to be, um, you suddenly say, hold on a second, but people aren't buying the clothes anymore. We've got a problem. Let's get the coffee shop out. And, uh, and, and that creates exactly. a new enterprise. Exactly. Exactly that. Um, yeah, do, we didn't do beans matter? Naked coffee to take off the way it did. Do beans matter? Does it matter where you get your beans from? Are you particularly particular in where you source your beans, or is it the way in which they're treated in the roasting process that matters more? It's all of the above. Um, so we spent about six months tasting hundreds of various beans. Um, until we found the taste profile that we were very happy with. Um, again, it's just the attention to detail. You know, we're very detail focused and orientated. And, um, you know, the entire recipe is a very important part of the business. You know, from the equipment, the means of extraction, the training of the baristas, um, we're extremely passionate about the product we put out. And, uh, yeah, we ensure that every cup is as good as it possibly can be. How much can you charge for a cup of coffee? I mean, there's a, there's a resistance point. I was talking to the guys at Scully Cider and they, they, they export 99% of what they make in Elgin to the United Kingdom. And they just found that Distel's got the cider market cornered. They produce you know, the second biggest cider producer in the world with Savannah and Hunters and the various products there. And they were just, you know, there was a resistance to pay twice the price of a bottle of Savannah for a craft cider. So they went, okay, fine. We'll export. No problem. And they did. Um, what, what, what's the resistance? resistance point in terms of the price of a cup of coffee is it about the coffee is it about the experience in which the coffee is drunk what what are the the sort of pressures there yeah i definitely think i mean naked is positioned as a premium brand i think people are less resistant to pay higher prices in the right environment um but to be honest i believe that coffee is a commodity that's you know we undercharge um i think Consumers are going to be quite surprised, but I think coffee prices are going to continue to increase. You know, yeah. back in the day, you were paying 15 to 20 rand for a cappuccino. 
and a flat white. Now these prices are creeping up to 35 Rand. Um, and, you know, I just came back from a trip to Europe. Guys are charging five pounds a cup of coffee, five yeah. euros. Yeah. Um, so it is, it's increasing, you know, these logistical challenges. Um, there's obviously supply chain issues and prices are going to continue to increase, unfortunately. Do you have time to read? Do you like to read business books at all? Or do you escape um, the, the, your work day and, and, I don't know, read Vogue magazines? What is it that you you, you like to you, uh, to read in your spare time? Yeah, look, I mean, I do like to read, obviously. I like to read um, business books for sure. I listen to a lot of business podcasts. Um, but funny that you mentioned magazines. I've actually got hundreds of magazines, fashion magazines, piled up from over the years. My girlfriend's actually forcing me to throw a few out, but I see them as collector's items. I mean, just always being so passionate about the fashion scene, it was always a way for me to kind of follow the trends um, living in South Africa by buying these international mags. So I do have quite the collection as well. And what book are you reading at the moment? You say you do read business books, or if not reading at the moment, that you've recently read? Um, one that I'm starting to read is The E-Myth. Um, I believe it's actually, I haven't started it yet. Um, at the moment, I'm reading the, the Will Smith autobiography. Um, so I, as soon as I finish that, I'm moving on to the E-Myth. The Will Smith autobiography, if you, do you, if you read it lying on your back and you fall asleep, does it like fall and slap you in the face and wake you up? <laughs> does it, does it hit harder it than would. other books, I wonder? Anyway, um, okay, he, my, my producers are shouting at me. Um, I'm having a go at Will Smith. Yes, I am. He's not in the room. I feel quite safe. Um, you've turned your hobbies into a business or multiple businesses. Does that take away from the, the joy of the hobby? Do you create new hobbies in order to relax or do you just love the hobbies that you turned into businesses so much that actually they, they're a jaw as well as work? Yeah, listen, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm, it definitely gets me up in the morning and I'm excited to go to work every day. I think they start out as hobbies, they become businesses, and then different things start to drive you. And I'm more kind of what drives me now. I'm excited to build my teams of staff and upskill my teams and build an awesome corporate culture where people are excited to come to work and driven and motivated. I think that as an entrepreneur drives me more than kind of the idea of owning a business now. And you like traveling, clearly. You find traveling inspirational. You like to go and get ideas from elsewhere. Um, people, entrepreneurs have done that for generations as well from South Africa. We're at the bottom of tip of Africa. We stare up at the rest of the world from where we are. Where is your most inspiring place that you like to visit? Oh, Bruce, that's a tough one. You know, every, every place I visit, I get inspired. Um, I recently returned from a trip to Italy. I find Italy extremely inspiring, just the way they live life and the way they enjoy life. They enjoy food. They enjoy their time. Um, but every place we travel to, we get inspired. Um, we started traveling to Amsterdam, you know, at the beginning of our business journey. And that inspired us greatly. When we were working with Superdry, we used to visit the UK at least twice or three times a year. Um, you know, and these big bustling cities just, you know, you want to, you want to kind of uplift South Africa and Joburg and Cape Town to those kind of statuses in a, in a sense, you know, you see so much, you're exposed to so much. And that's what drives me is to try and create those kind of environments within our own economy. 
Fabulous Tales. Thank you for sharing. Victor Barbosa, creative entrepreneur, the co-founder at Naked Coffee. It's his most recent venture, but he's also the guy who brought you Super Dry. He's the guy who does still bring you Denham, Denham, uh, and of course, Scotch and Soda. What an interesting, diverse portfolio of business interests he has. Thank you, Victor Barbosa.